Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this lecture, held on September 26, 2016, as part of the Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Paige Rosansky sheds light on the discoveries she made during her research at the Dwan Gallery Archives and the Virginia Dwan Archives in preparation for the exhibition, Los Angeles to New York, Dwan Gallery, 1959-1971. Rosansky underscores the integral role this material played in planning the exhibition, illustrates how the archives contributed to scholarship, and outlines her approach to writing the chronology and exhibition history published in the exhibition catalog. Before I begin, I would like to thank Virginia Dwan for allowing me to access her incredible archives and providing me the opportunity to tell her story. I would also like to thank Ann Kovac, curator of the Dwan Collection. I couldn't have done this project without her immense help and support. She guided me through the archives and welcomed me on many occasions to New York. I am grateful to both curator James Meyer and editor-in-chief Judy Metro for seeing the merit in my work and for providing an ample amount of room in the catalog for my research and writing. I'd also like to thank Harry Cooper for his thoughtful suggestions, and thanks to Sarah and Allie and academic programs for the invitation to present a Works of Progress talk. My original task from James Meyer, the curator of the show, was to help research the Dwan Gallery for the exhibit and to write a chronology for the catalog. It was encouraged that I visit the Dwan archives to help with this research. I immediately sensed the many directions this could go in. For one, the chronology was meant to tell the story of Virginia's life, yet it was also meant to tell the history of Dwan Gallery. So here I had many layers to address, as one aspect was to tell the history of a person through a certain time period, presenting biographic facts about Virginia. The other was to provide historical information about each exhibition held at Dwan Gallery. And to fully do this, I needed to then consider other details, such as information about each artist and the context around each show. This talk will pre present some of the documents that are housed in the archive, and as you will see, they really speak for themselves. My job was to familiarize myself with the entirety of the archive, read through all of the materials, conduct further research, interpret all the information I gathered, and organize everything I found into one concise and intelligible document. This talk is not meant to provide a history of the Dwan Gallery, but before I jump into things, let me provide a bit of context. Virginia Dwan opened the Dwan Gallery in 1959 in Westwood, Los Angeles. It moved to a new address in LA in 1962, where it remained open until 1967. Here's the first location and the second location in Los Angeles. In 1964, Virginia moved to New York City, and a year later, in 1965, she opened a second location in New York, becoming the first bi-coastal art gallery. During the gallery's slightly more than a decade run from 1959 through 1971, it hosted 134 exhibitions. When I arrived at the archives, my approach was to first acquaint myself with the history of the gallery by reading through all of the materials relating to the Dwan Gallery shows. I started with a list of all the Dwan exhibitions, and as I mentioned, there were 134 of them. I was amazed to discover the range of exhibitions and scope of artists that showed at Dwan. Though I was familiar with some of the Dwan Gallery's historic shows, I was not aware of quite how prolific it was until I dove into the materials. Dwan Gallery had exhibitions that covered the full range of artistic tendencies in the 1960s, 
from abstract expressionism, pop art, and nouveau realism to minimalism, conceptual, and land art. While many of the artists Virginia showed are quite well known to museum goers and scholars today, several are less recognizable, such as often the case with the canon of art history. Fortunately, for me, researching the Duan Gallery exhibitions was straightforward as the archive had very organized binders that housed materials pertaining to each show. I began by reading through everything, which included original checklists, installation photographs, and reviews. One of the most compelling discoveries I made while looking over the wealth of shows was the creativeness of the gallery's official materials used to promote and advertise exhibitions. For each show, some type of announcement or advertisement, and on occasion, a catalog was made. The design elements for every show were incredibly different and unique, and oftentimes the artists provided input and worked closely with Virginia and gallery staff to create the show's materials. At times, artists even developed their own posters that were then sold at the gallery. Even the typography and logo of the gallery transformed over the years. And here are some examples of the different letterheads. To begin constructing my timeline, I started by laying out each of the Duan shows in chronological order in a Word document, creating a skeleton framework that I could expound upon. Later, after my work in the archives, I would continue to research each show, reading through most of the art periodicals of the day to locate additional reviews and advertisements, and researching artists to learn more details about their activities and the works they were making during the time they showed at Duan. I want to now provide some examples of the exhibitions held at Duan Gallery throughout the years and the types of materials associated with them that I uncovered in the archives. Virginia's early shows focused on abstract expressionism, the major artistic tendency coming out of New York. She was one of the first dealers to bring this art to the West Coast, showing seminal artists such as Philip Guston, Franz Klein, Matsumi Kanemitsu, and Joan Mitchell. In October 1960, she held an exhibition, 15 of New York, which included many of these artists who she also gave solo shows to in the early years. A review praised the gallery for, quote, assembling such a show long overdue in this vicinity. Here you can see installation images of the exhibit. The top here's Philip Guston's The Room and Franz Klein's Garcia. And this is the back office space with a painting by Raymond Parker. And here is the announcement for the show and an original checklist. Only two years after opening, Duan moved away from showing abstract expressionism and began showing Nia Dada and pop art. Many of these artists began incorporating found materials or advertisements into their works, such as the combines of Robert Rauschenberg or the paintings of Larry Rivers, who both showed at the gallery. And again, many of these New York artists were first brought to the West Coast by Virginia. Virginia also held one of the first shows on pop, a group show titled My Country Tis of Thee, which featured Roy Lichtenstein and Jasper Johns. Here you can see some materials relating to the class Oldenburg show held in October 1963. Oldenburg moved to LA for several months, living in a bungalow in Venice and exploring the city in a Chevrolet sedan he found in Virginia's garage. He rented a former bank building as a studio and made many of the large-scale works shown at Duan for the first time. Here you can see the checklist, the poster designed by the artist. This is a picture of Oldenburg outside of Duan Gallery with floor cone. And here's an installation image with floor cone, BLT, 
and giant, um, sorry, and wedge of pecan pie. Oldenburg also planned a happening that was delayed until November. And here you can see the poster he made, which was an evening performance featuring automobiles. Virginia was the first dealer to show the French Nouveau Realists on the West Coast, and Martial Raïs was one of these artists. She first met Raïs in France in 1962 and put him under a three-year contract. She eventually would show three shows, have host three shows for him at Douane. The artist came to LA on several occasions and made works while staying with Virginia, including his first neon pieces. Here's a poster from his 1963 show, a poster from his 1964 show featuring the artist with one of his first neon works, Homage to Los Angeles, an original checklist from his 1967 show. Here are installation images from his 1964 show and a photograph from the opening of his 1967 show with Virginia, Marcial Raiz, Dennis Hopper, and his wife, Brooke Hayward. In 1966, when Duan Gallery opened its New York location, Virginia began showing minimal art. One of her most recognized shows is the group show 10, and many of these artists, including Saul Witt, would have several solo shows at Duan. Virginia first became acquainted with Lewitt's work in late 1965. She became close friends with him and he introduced her to other artists, including Robert Smithson. Duan Gallery hosted five shows for Lewitt, two at the Los Angeles location and three in New York. And here you can see an illustrated checklist from his first show at Duan in 1966, an announcement and installation shot from his 1967 show in LA that filled the entire space of the gallery with his work serial A, one through nine, as well as the hand-drawn diagram by Lewitt that was made into the poster for the show. And here's a photograph from the 1968 show in New York, an announcement from his 1969 New York show that featured his wall drawings. Virginia started showing conceptual art in the 1960s, including four language shows and artists who worked with a range of conceptual ideas. William Anastasi is an example of an artist that showed multiple times at Duan and worked in a variety of mediums. Here's an advertisement, an installation image for his 1966 show of sound objects, which featured util utilitarian tools such as drills and shovels that Anastasi placed in open boxes with speakers nearby, which transmitted the sound of each object. This is an announcement for his 1967 show, Six Sights, and an installation image with the artist in front of one of his six photo silkscreen canvases, each depicted an image of the wall at Duan Gallery on which the canvas was mounted. And here is an advertisement, an installation image for his two-part show in 1970. The first featured sculptures, including these works made of stacked steel rebar, and the second part included a photographic series taken in, of the interior spaces of Duong Gallery called Continuum. Duong Gallery's 1968 seminal show, Earthworks, featured 10 artists and was the first to show, treat land art as a genre. Heralding a new direction in art, the show featured photo documentation, sketches, and models for works in progress. Many of the artists, including Michael Heiser, Robert Smithson, and Walter De Maria, would also have solo shows at the gallery. 
And here you can see an advertisement for the show featuring a photograph taken by Virginia Dwan during one of her expeditions with Smithson as they searched for land, an announcement for the show made out of sand, and a list of materials for Robert Morris's dirt pile. In the bottom, you can see installation images of the show, including Robert Morris's dirt pile and Robert Smithson's non-site Franklin, New Jersey. And on the wall in the back is Michael Heiser's abstraction of Dissipate Number 2, which was made in the Black Rock Desert, and Walter De Maria's painting inscribed, the color men choose when they attack the earth. And the color of this painting was yellow like a bulldozer. One of the most unique aspects of Dwan Gallery was Virginia Dwan's relationships with artists. She formed close friendships with many of them and supported their art by providing stipends, an entirely unique thing for a gallery to do in the 1960s. Several of the artists came to visit her in LA and made works for their shows on site. They often stayed in her guest house and, rented studio, and she rented studio space for them. Virginia accompanied the artists on explorations throughout the city and would continue these types of adventures with artists after she moved to New York. This leads me to the next part of my research at the archives, which was reading through all the correspondence that exists. And there is a lot of it. Personal correspondence between Virginia and artists and gallery correspondence, including letters between the gallery, artists, collectors, and museums. Additionally, there were gallery records, such as original inventories, advanced books, and log books. Reading through this material required several trips to New York. I read through every letter and document and recorded relevant facts. And here's where I began to flush out my skeleton chronology. Often the letters provided more information on exhibitions or more details about where or what Virginia was doing at a certain time. Using the dates of these letters as the organizing principle, I was able to expand upon my outline. Reading through the correspondence is also where many of the true discoveries arose. And I'd like to now show you some of the materials I came across. And as you can imagine, the wealth of primary documents in the archive is quite amazing. And I've just chosen a, a couple examples focusing on several artists and one show to highlight the treasure trove I had the opportunity to look through. Virginia formed a close friendship with New York-based artist Ad Reinhardt. They corresponded often by letter, and here you can see some examples with Reinhardt's beautiful, distinctive calligraphy. On the left is a letter that features a drawing of Virginia's house and pool, recalling one of the artist's many trips he made out west to visit her. The letter in the middle features the list of works from his 1963 show. And the letter on the right is of a more personal note. While it still discusses plans for his show, the final paragraph reads, quote, is there anything else? I'll come. I'll fix everything up. I'll be as helpful as all hell out. I'm not a good handy Andy, but not a bad spoil sport and sour apple. You must be a pretty busy bee these days, honey, and pop queen of the Rockies and rodeos out there by now. Your loving, ever obedient servant, Ad. Reinhardt's art had an impact on Virginia as well. For example, when she designed the second Los Angeles gallery, she based the height of the walls on her 108-inch tall Reinhardt. And later, Reinhardt helped Virginia put together her seminal show on minimalism, 10. And here you can see images for his 1962 and 1963 show held at the two different LA locations. 
an announcement for his 1963 show. As I suggested previously, Virginia brought many artists out west and developed close friendships with them. Many of these were French artists associated with the Nouveau Realists, who she was first introduced to through Yves Klein. Husband and wife artist Jean Tongli and Nikki de Saint-Fall made frequent visits to LA, staying with Virginia at her house and making works in a studio that Virginia rented for them. The works made in California were shown in Tongli's 1963 show and Saint-Fall's 1964 show. And here are photographs of the artists in LA, sorry, and during a fishing trip to Mexico that Virginia took with them. While in LA, Saint-Fall performed several of her shooting pieces, which she called Tears. These photographs document a tear that she made in the hills above Malibu, in which she shoots a relief featuring bags of hidden paint, which explode when hit by a bullet. Here she is shooting the painting, and here she is looking at it afterward with Edward Keenholz, another artist. The work was later moved to Virginia's pool, and this photo shows the, a pool party with um, several famous people, including Mercy Cunningham, Louise Nevelson, Philip Gustin, and others. Here's an advertisement for her 1964 show, and images of Desson fall shopping for materials and with one of her reliefs. And events like the tear and the pool party were difficult to pin down for my chronology and required additional research, reading through reviews, artist catalogs, and biographies to fine tune the dates. Here are some images relating to Jean Tongli. The image on the top left is taken outside of Duan Gallery and captures staff, including artist Edward Keenholz, moving one of his sculptures inside. Here's the installation image for the show. And on the bottom is a picture of Tongli's studio, a handwritten checklist by the artist with prices and titles of the works. One of his six fountains that he made while he was in LA that were installed on uh, the lawns of six collectors. And here's a recount of uh, different uh, accounts that Tongli and the gallery had. And uh, the artists continued to correspond with Virginia for years, and these are some of the letters that they would send her. Boxes was a 1964 group show organized by the gallery with the assistance of the gallery's director, John Weber. The show surveyed artists in the 20th century who had incorporated the theme of the box within their artwork. The announcement for the show consisted of a box with a scroll that included images and descriptions of each work. When I first began researching this show, I discovered that the Duan archive did not have any installation images, and we all assumed none existed. Later, while doing research at the archives of American art, I was thrilled to locate an image from the show and the papers of Lucy R. Lepard. And here is an example of sometimes how my research would fill in gaps for the archive. And later I discovered this postcard in the archive from Lepard requesting the box's announcement. So clearly the show made an impact on her. Weber enlisted many artists to make boxes specifically for the show, including James Rosenquist's toaster, which is featured on the cover of Art Forum. Another lesser known fact, but incredibly important for art history, is that Andy Warhol made his first Brillo boxes 
in response to the show's theme, and they were exhibited at Dwan Gallery for the first time. In a letter from November 1963, Weber writes to Warhol, your idea of making cardboard boxes is sensational. When researching artworks for the show, we tried to track down the original yellow Brillo boxes shown at Dwan. My research directed me to a private collector who I believed owned them. We eventually decided to borrow the Whitney Museum's Brillos as they were similar. Only during installation did we make the exciting discovery that these were indeed the original show ones shown in LA, for the boxes have a Dwan gallery label taped to the bottom of them. Another important artist who played an integral role in both the operations and history of Dwan Gallery was Edward Keenholz. Keenholz was the major LA artist who showed at Dwan. Not only did he have four shows there, two in the LA location and two in New York, but Keenholz also helped with the gallery. For a time, he lived in Bath, and in exchange for rent, he set up and organized their storeroom. Keenholz also served as an ambassador to many of the artists who visited Virginia and LA. He took them rummaging for supplies and helped assemble boxes for Armand's accumulations and Tongli's kinetic sculptures. I discovered many IOUs and handwritten receipts from Keenholz, such as the two pic pictured here. Here's an image of the artist in the gallery preparing for his first show in 1963. Sorry. <laughs> Keenholz's 1964 exhibition at Dwan was one of the most iconic and notorious exhibitions in LA during the 1960s. Here he presented three tableaux, including Backseat Dodge, The Birthday, and While Visions of Sugar Plums Danced in Their Heads. Backseat Dodge featured a scene of an illicit encounter through the open door of an automobile's backseat. This work prompted a visit to the gallery from detectives from the LA Police Department's vice squad who were investigating a complaint against the show regarding its, quote, pornographic content. Correspondence I found in the archive tells how Councilman Thomas Bradley intervened. Weber, writing to Keenholz soon after, states, good news, the vice squad has decided not to prosecute. We use the influence of Councilman Bradley, and today we continue to have our doors open. Later in 1965, Keenholz would inaugurate Dwan Gallery's New York space with the debut of his sculpture, The Beanery, in a show that generated extensive reviews and attention from mainstream media, including Newsweek, Time, and Life magazine. And here you can see a poster for the show, the original press release, and installation images. When Dwan Gallery opened in New York, Virginia developed a new roster of artists, many of which she became close friends with, including Robert Smithson, who she met in 1966. Smithson began to make field trips to New Jersey to collect materials for sculptures and to look for land to make permanent artworks upon. Virginia began to accompany him on these excursions, along with artists Nancy Holt, Robert Morris, and Carl Andre. And in this Ensuing years, these trips would take them farther afield. Here are a range of candid photographs taken from 1967 through 1969 during site searches and other adventures, including Smithson, Virginia, Robert Morris and Carl Andre in Atlantic City, Smithson, Holt, and Virginia at a brick furnace taken during a site search, photos that Virginia took at the Bangor Slate Quarries, a photograph taken during an East Coast trip to look at war memorials, 
Smithson collecting sand from the Pine Barrens with Virginia Nancy Holt, which would be used in his first non-site in non-site Pine Barrens, New Jersey. Smithson and Michael Heiser at the Franklin Mineral Dump. And here's a postcard from Smithson and Holt sent to Virginia during a visit they took to California. Virginia's adventures with artists culminated in the patronage of several large-scale sculptures, including Smithson's spiral jetty built in the Great Salt Lake in Utah. In the spring of 1970, she, visit Sorry, skipped a slide. she visited the recently completed work with Smithson and Holt and even photographed it out of a helicopter. She helped fund Smithson's spiral jetty, which was shown at the gallery that fall. And here you can see images Virginia took and related materials, including a map and a budget for the film. Virginia also accompanied Smithson and Holt to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico on an adventure that started in Captiva, Florida with a visit to see Robert Rauschenberg and ended with a trip down the Usumacinta River and visit to Mayan ruins in Uxmal. In Mexico, Smithson created his nine mirror displacements, which he wrote about in his essay, Incidents of Mirror Travel in the Yucatan, published in Art Forum in September 1969. As you can see from the above slides, the archives contained a treasure trove of information that I used to form the basis of my chronology. After utilizing all these materials to form the maps of my document, I turned to other sources, including books, reviews, an oral history with Virginia Dwan, done by Charles Stuckey in the 1980s, and my own conversations with Virginia. This was in order to fill up parts of the narrative that were missing. I also felt that it was important to include historical events and other major art events taking place at the same time to provide context to the story I was trying to tell. When I was finished, I had a 200-page document to submit to the publishing department and the unknown of how the final form would be integrated into the catalog. For as you may recall, I had started this project with simple instruction to construct a, chron a chronology and to visit the archives to assist with this project. As I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, the final results are a chronology and an exhibition history. At some point during the editing process, the decision was made to separate the document into two parts. A chronology, this is a page from it, that offers a narrative of Virginia's life and the history of the gallery, and an exhibition history that details each of the 134 shows at Dwan with checklists for each show and as many reviews as I could locate. I hope you'll take a look at the catalog to see the finished product. I would also encourage everyone to visit the Study Center to view the library show, Selections from the Dwan Gallery and Virginia Dwan Archives that I worked on with Yuri Long. The library show features many of the original materials I mentioned in my presentation and lots of other exciting discoveries that highlight Virginia's life and the history of the gallery. And I'll just end by um, giving a couple of questions that I thought about after working on this. It's interesting to note how communication has changed and how technology has uh, changed the face of the art world, including the operations of a gallery. Things happened much slower back then, and there was much more back and forth. To get something done quickly, a telegram or a phone call had to be made, and otherwise it was correspondence by letter. It's also interesting to note the value in how an object can tell a larger history. 
and how an artwork does not exist on its own, but speaks to the larger historical context in which it was shown. And I felt that working with James on the project, how the art in the exhibition um, is really selected to provide a greater story of the different exhibitions that Virginia held. And I also would um, think about how the Duan Gallery in many ways exists as a microcosm of the history of the 1960s. Uh, it shows the changing aesthetics and the modes occurring in art during this time. Thank you. This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast. 